0: So Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. How does that strike you? Good? Yeah. (laughs) That's good. A little feedback. I like that. Good. How do those words kind of sit with you? For some of us, they make us excited and expectant. For some of us, myself included, they make me a little uneasy, a little uncomfortable. And for some of us, they kind of cause us to ask some questions. Like, "Well, why hasn't he come back yet? Or when he does come back, what is he going to do? And then some of us just think about like bumper stickers when when we hear things like that. Like, have you seen that one that says, Jesus is coming back. Look busy. Do something. It's just, uh, yeah, that's my favorite bumper sticker. That's actually the least, you know, ridiculous of most of them. Um, So, I want to convince you of this, though, in this sermon. And I want to assure you of it as well that Jesus is coming back, but that that is good news. So, today we're going to be talking about when Christ comes back what is it going to be like? What's he coming to do? And then also, what do we do in the meantime? So, turn in 2 Samuel 5 1 through 10. Follow along with me. And at this point, you're probably thinking, Where is he going with this sermon? What what does Jesus coming back have anything to do with with 2 Samuel and David being anointed king? Well, in this story that we read today, we get two of the most important images in the whole Bible. Two of the most important images. And if we don't kind of grasp these images, then our understanding of Christianity and what Jesus has done... What he is doing and what he's going to do will be somewhat truncated. So we get these really important images. And we're going to look at those two images today. So what, what exactly are those images? What happens in David's story? Well, so to give you guys a little bit of background, Saul has just been killed in battle. Not by David. He just got killed in battle. And so the people are without a king. And the tribes of Israel actually come to David and say, we want you to be our king. We want you to shepherd over us. We want you to be prince over us. And then they make a covenant, which is what you make at a wedding. It's like a commitment where you make vows to each other and you say, I'm committed to you. you and, and in this particular case, it's I'm committed to you as king. The tribe said, we want you to be our king. We're committed to you. We swear our allegiance to you. And David says, I will fight for you. I will be a king over you, but not a bad king. I'll be a shepherd. I'll be a prince. And God will be the ultimate king over you. So that's what they do here. And so, if you want to pop up the slide, what we see here is that David becomes king over God's people, Israel. That's what happens in verses 1 through 3. Then, in verses 6 through 9, what we see is that David conquers his royal city, Jerusalem. Where there, what he's doing is setting up his kind of physical domain. The place where he's going to reign from. So, you guys see it. David becomes king over God's people, Israel. And then a few verses later, David conquers the city of Jerusalem. And what this is setting up, these two images, is this. That David is king over his people, and then he's king over a city. And these two images of people and city are really important for us in the whole biblical story. Because in the prophets and then in the New Testament, what we see is the same exact picture is painted of Christ's kingdom. So we see and we know, I'm assuming most of us know this, that Jesus won his people on the cross. When he died for our sins, rose again, And then ascended to heaven and sits on his throne, the king over his people, the church. So go ahead and throw up the next. You'll see the comparison here. Oh, That's fancy technology, isn't it? Um, So Christ is king over God's people, the church. We know that. But then the comparison here kind of gets a little funky. So if you were like at a, a dance party and you were listening to kind of old school records, this is where like the record would scratch. I had a guy at the 745 service come up to me, and he was like, actually, Dan, they're called vinyls. And I was like, all right, sorry. Um, that's the one thing he pulled out of my sermon. Um, but <laughs> I was like, okay. Uh, no, he's, a, he's actually a friend of mine. But um, So you would expect here, Christ is king over his people, and then he's seated on the throne. You would expect, all right, here comes the city. Where's the city? So where is the city in the Bible? Where he comes and establishes his earthly reign. Well, it doesn't come a few verses later. Actually, it comes at the end of the story. Revelation 21 talks about the new Jerusalem. God bringing his city down to earth. Where he will establish righteousness and glory throughout the entire world. So, we have the same two images but it doesn't come a few verses later, it comes at the end of the story. So, what we have here is that his pattern and his plan is sure. And this text in, in 2 Samuel is the first time that we see that pattern in its fullness. But we, as Christians, find ourselves here. If you see this white era, this is kind of where we live in this in-between stage where Christ's kingdom in some ways is already here. It's coming each day. Like to give you an example, twice this week there were some amazing things happening just in this church. One of them was happening in this room. I sat with like 75 children as they danced and sang and heard about the love of Jesus at VBS. And I got to see the VBS leaders loving and patiently caring for these children. It was amazing. The kingdom is coming. And then another thing happened far away in Guatemala. A group from this church went and went and ministered to people in a trash dump. And if that isn't the kingdom coming, I don't know what is. If telling people that live in a trash dump about the good news of Jesus, that's kingdom coming. So in some ways, God's kingdom is already here. But we know that it's not yet fully here because sin and death, still happen here. So we live in this in-between time. So if you're a fan, um, kids, possibly, and adults, the Chronicles of Narnia, if you know the Chronicles of Narnia, or have seen the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where we are is where Aslan has been slain and then has risen from the dead. And then, so the curse is broken, and we see springtime starts coming. The winter is passing away. But remember that time in the story where the witch was still, the white witch was still in the castle? She was still on her throne? Well, that's where we are in the story, where Christ has won, but the battle isn't yet finished. And so we live in this kind of arrow land. So that's where we are. So the question is now, what do we do in this in-between stage where God is on the move, But the battle isn't yet won. What has God called us to do in the meantime? And so most preachers have like a three-point sermon. Well, I'm going to give you guys two points. I'm going to simplify it for you guys. So this is going to be a two-point sermon. This is what I think David, in David's story and in the New Testament, that God's inviting us into in this in-between time. The first invitation is this. Commit to Christ the patient King. So commit to Christ, the patient king. And the second point is wait for Christ, the conquering king. Wait for Christ, the conquering thing. So commit and then wait. So the first invitation is commit to Christ, the patient king. So why do I say patient? Why is Christ the patient king? Go with me to 2 Samuel 5, verse 1 through 3 of the passage. And here we see something interesting happening. We actually see the tribes and elders of Israel coming to David. Now, why do they do that? Why do they come to David? You would expect David to go to them and say, hey, I'm your king now. Like, it's time for, you know, you guys to start paying rent or whatever it is that you guys pay. Um, Start paying taxes. But that's not actually what happens. They go to him. And the reason for that is because Saul had been their king. These were Saul's people. This was Saul's Israel. And, then, and, and and as we know, Saul thought that David was his rival. And so he was telling everybody the whole time, David is bad. David's the rival king. He's trying to take over. And then Saul dies. And you wouldn't expect the people of a nation to go to the rival of their previous king and ask him to be their king. So why do they go? Well, in verse 2, we see this. The elders of the tribe say to David this. When Saul was king, you were the one who led us out in battle. You were the one who led out Israel. So David proved himself worthy. That's why the people of Israel came to him and said, we want you to shepherd us. We want you to be our king. And the the weird thing about this is they're coming. This is the point where they're coming and asking him to be their king. But when was David anointed king? He was anointed king years ago when he was just a shepherd boy. You guys remember that? This was like way, like five weeks ago or something. But he was anointed king a long time ago. But they're coming to him and saying, hey, we want you to be our king. So what did David do? He waited. He waited for the people to be ready to call him king. And that's the same thing that Christ does in our lives. It's the same kind of king that he is because the Father has anointed Jesus king over the entire universe. He's on his throne right now. But like David, he waits. He doesn't impose his strong arm and say, I'm taking over. He says, I'm going to wait. He waits for me to come to him and ask him to be my king, to put order to my disordered life to fix the brokenness of, of my life. That's the king we serve. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? That we have a God who waits for us, is patient, until we say, okay, I've tried hard enough. I need you to be my king. So we wait for Christ, the patient king. We commit to Christ, the patient king. So my question, my first kind of question for you guys is this. Are you weary? Are you tired? Have you been trying over and over again to control your life, to get everything together? Well, Christ is saying to you, commit to me. I'm waiting for you. Hand over the reins to me. You've tried long enough. I will give you rest. Are you tired of letting some rival king rule over you? It could be an addiction. It could be a hidden sin. It could be our anger. It could be our incessant need for more stuff. I got to buy more stuff. We have these rivals that are always competing. And here's the deal with, that, with the rival kings. This commitment to Christ isn't a one-time thing. It's actually like a thousand times a day is when you're committing to Christ as King. Like for me and my wife, we just bought a house. It's our first house and we, we went into the process not knowing what to expect. And literally God gifted us the most amazing house, better than anything that we could ever ask or imagine. I mean, it is such a beautiful, it was the only one we looked at that was move-in ready. And it was the, the least price out of all of them. It was below what we were looking at for our price range. It was this amazing gift that God gave to us. But we've been living there for two months now. We're kind of starting to be like, you know, it would be nice to paint those cabinets, you know. We're like, you know what we really need? An island. We need an island right here in the middle of the kitchen. And, and I don't know if you guys are like this, but we do this. I, I, we're doing this kind of thing where we're like, you know, this house isn't real. I mean, we could do more stuff to it. We need it to look like pottery barn before we can really feel settled. As I mean, we do this. Guys, girls do it about different things, but we do it. And so we have consistently had conversations and said, we need to commit this to the Lord. We need to enjoy this gift that he's given us. And if he wants us to make some fixes and that kind of stuff, let's do it on his timeline. Let's not break the bank to do it. Let's do it slow. And if he just wants to enjoy it, he wants us to enjoy it as it is, hey, he's the king. And we'll just thank him for it. And so this everyday commitment of God, you are a king. And it's over the big things and over the little things. So commit to Christ. The patient king. The second thing, the second invitation is this. Wait. Wait for Christ, the conquering king. Because just as David conquered Jerusalem, Christ is going to come again and conquer everything. But until that day, we wait. As the American poet Tom Petty sings, the waiting is the hardest part. Every day, you see one more card. You take it on faith. You take it to the heart. The waiting is the hardest part. And as we wait for the world to be restored, for Christ to come back and set up his reign here on earth, the waiting is often the hardest part. Because oftentimes, although we've committed to the king, we still live in a world where many, many people don't acknowledge him as king. And oftentimes, if Christ is your king, if you're following him, it's not uncommon to feel this sense that people look at you and they think, you're kind of a fool for believing that Jesus is king over the universe. And you're kind of a fool for believing he's actually going to come again. We feel this kind of, maybe people don't say it up front, but we can kind of see it in their face. And in David's story, we see this same thing happen. We read that he faced a similar kind of ridicule as he sought to take the city of Jerusalem. So in 6 through 9, we see this. The Jebusites have been living there in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, as a city, was known for how impenetrable its walls were. So it had these big towering walls. And the Jebusites were like, we're secure because these walls are great the fortress is kind of impenetrable. But the Jebusites, what they did is they mocked David because they said, you think, you, your, you little fledgling little king, with your fledgling little people and your invisible God, do you think you can come and take this city? And then they say this, the blind and the lame will ward you off. What does that mean? What that means is that what they were saying to David is that we don't need our best men to guard this city. The blind and the lame could guard this city. And so David, what he says is, all right, and what they do is they go up the water shaft into the city. They go around like through the walls up the water shaft into the city and they take it over. Because David knew something that the Jebusites did not know. And verse, tel- verse 10 tells us this. It says this, And David became greater and greater for the Lord. The God of hosts was with him. That's why he became greater and greater. Because God was with him. He had God on his side. And God delivered the the city into his hands. And sometimes as we wait for Christ as conqueror. We get mocked along the way. As the times kind of are changing. And the cultural ground is shifting underneath our feet as Christians. We begin to have these silent doubts. Is God really in control? Does he really know what we're going through? But just as God was with David, he's with us. Because God doesn't abandon his people. Christ is saying, I am the king and I'm on the throne. You don't need to fear. You don't need to fear anything. So commit to Christ, the patient king, and then wait for Christ, the conquering king. Now, earlier in the sermon, I said this that Christ's coming again is actually good news. So why is it good news? Well, the reason it's good news is because until he comes again, he can't set up the new Jerusalem, the new city. And so I want to spend the rest of the time just talking a little bit about what this new city is going to be like, where we're going to be spending eternity together. And I want to start with this little, uh, it's kind of like a detail that you would kind of pass over. I've probably read it 10 times and never thought anything about it. But it, it's talking about the architecture of the city. So the architects in the room, you're, you, you, know, you guys are interested, nobody else is. But I'll focus in here, because this is actually really interesting. It says this, the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven. And then in verse 16, it gives the measurement. It says, the city lies four square. Its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. And then it says this. So kind of geometrically imagine this. Its length, its width, and its height are equal. So what is that? Who knows? Cube. Yeah, that's right. Good job. So it's a cube. It's a giant cube. And scholars say that this, that this geometric shape is really important. And all the, the hearers in Jerusalem would know exactly what to think when they heard that the new Jerusalem is going to be a cube. Because the only thing that was a cube in their understanding and of their worship of God was in the temple. It was this room called the Holy of Holies. And what the Holy of Holies was, was where God's power and glory and righteousness and goodness was fully and totally present on earth. That's what the Holy of Holies was, and it was a cube. And so what the writer of Revelation is saying is that the New Jerusalem isn't going to be a small room in the temple. The New Jerusalem is going to be a huge city full of the power and the glory and the goodness of God. And so for those of us who struggle with doubt, struggle with feeling like God is distant, who struggle with where is he sometimes? Why can't I feel him? Jerusalem is going to be a place where God is with us everywhere. He will be as near to us as a breath. And it says this, that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And then in the New City, it talks about a banquet, a feast, But we're going to sit down and eat the best food that we've ever eaten. I don't know about you guys, but I love going out to restaurants, my wife and I. Our favorite place is this place in uh, Five Points called Hawkers. And so I'm, I'm praying that there's going to be some Hawkers there. But in the new Jerusalem, we're not just going to float around on clouds. We're going to eat and drink and enjoy ourselves. And at that table, as we all sit, will be all the believers that we've lost just this past week, I, a man at my old church, a 60-year-old man by the name of Lance, was a contractor. He had hands that were like leather. and He loved Jesus. And he would always come up to me and shake my hand after church and say, how are you doing? How's your wife doing? And this past week, we lost him to cancer. And he'll be at that table eating that good food in the new city So we wait. We wait for Christ, the conquering king. Because then, Christ will be king over his people and his city. So today, commit to Christ, the patient king. And wait for Christ, the conquering king. Because he is coming back. And that's good news. Let's pray.